Hey everybody, my name is Dan Sullivan. I'm the head of growth and partnerships here at QZM and um, really, really excited for today's conversation. Hopefully everyone finds themselves safe and healthy. To all of our first time watchers, I just wanna say welcome and for everybody that's been here before, thank you again for being here. We're gonna have over 1,500 people joining us today watching live. So if you're one of them, please feel free to introduce yourselves in the chat. Another thing, you can ask questions using the Q&A functionality, and we'll try to get to as many as we possibly can. If you see a question that's already been asked, feel free to give it a thumbs up, uh, and that will allow us to prioritize the more pressing questions. So again, super glad you're all here. Want to wish everybody another safe and healthy week. And a uh, quick housekeeping item here. QZM has really kind of been committed to providing as many possible resources throughout the entire coronavirus pandemic. And we're going to continue to adjust those resources to make sure that they're as timely as possible for you. So recordings of all of our past webinars are available on the QZM website. And continuing that trend, we're going to have another webinar this Wednesday called Exploring the Future of Museums in the Era of Coronavirus. A registration link to that can be found on the QZM website as well. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, so after almost two months of coronavirus closures, many museums and cultural organizations are preparing to welcome their visitors and their members back, which is really exciting. However, while organizations might be reopening, many are doing so in a graduated way, and they're facing some new challenges. And specifically, a lot of them are realizing that tourism is going to be down for quite some time. And that has potentially profound uh, impact on admissions and membership re revenues. So at the same time, cultural organizations may have renewed appeal to local audiences as the world embraces this stay local or kind of staycation mentality for the foreseeable future. Listen to this panelist lineup for today. We have Tim O'Connell, the Director of Membership and Annual Giving at the North Carolina Museum of Art. Julie Knight, the Director of Membership at San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, SFMOMA. Soan Barrera, the Digital Marketing Manager at Exploratorium. And Daniel Vincent, the Director of Membership at Trustees of Reservations. We're gonna talk a lot about shifts in audiences and membership marketing strategy in light of coronavirus. So excited that all of our panelists are here. Thank you for being here. And let's start off just kind of with some quick introductions. We'll go around the room. So, so on, do you want to kind of kick us off? Give us a, a brief overview of you, your role, and your organization. Of course. Well, nice to meet you, everyone, virtually. My name is Sewan Chung Barrera, and I'm the Digital Marketing Manager at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. The Exploratorium is a San Francisco-based museum of art, science, and human perception. Uh, we opened in 1969 by physicist Frank Oppenheimer. In addition to being a museum, we are also a professional development home for teachers, uh, as well as a global exhibit design trailblazer. Uh, and our mission is to transform learning worldwide. Awesome. And Julie. Hi, I'm Julie Knight. I'm the Director of Membership at SFMOMA in um, San Francisco. And yes, we are, just like we sound, a museum of um, modern and contemporary art. Large museum. We just actually, yesterday, no, today, are having our fourth anniversary from our, for our new building. Um, with missing all that, that building and that red confetti. So, Absolutely, yes. for sure. And uh, Tim. Uh, yes, I'm Tim O'Connell, Director of Membership and Annual Giving at the North Carolina Museum of Art. Our museum uh, includes the uh, museum parks. So we have a 164-acre museum park. 
we feel very fortunate to have that right now because that has been our open space and folks have been able to enjoy that as well, but fortunate to be there and to have the resources we do. Awesome. And last but not least, Daniel. Hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Vincent. I'm the Director of Membership at the Trustees, formerly known as the Trustees of Reservations. We are one of America's oldest conservation organizations, the largest one in Massachusetts, where we're based. We're a statewide nonprofit, uh, private. We have 118 sites across Massachusetts, ranging from open spaces, beaches, working farms, historic house museums. We even have a cross-country ski facility, a couple campgrounds. So it is sort of part of our mission to try to be all things to all people all the time. And we're struggling with some of that right now, but our members are very loyal and very vocal. And we are um, dealing with reopening some of our sites this very week. Awesome. And kind of continuing that trend, I was just going to ask, what, what are some of your plans for reopening? Are you planning anything special kind of to welcome back your members? What does that look like? Danny, you want to kick us off? Sure. Well, <laughs> that's sort of a tricky, tricky question because it changes every day. And what we're planning uh, today for possibly tomorrow's reopening of some of our sites is different than we were planning a week ago for those same sites. We're following the order of Governor Charlie Baker and uh, his recommendations throughout. And we have, a, like I said, 118 sites. Not all of those are, are gated. You know, we have a lot of just sort of open spaces. But out of our gated properties, we opened some of them a few weeks ago to sort of passive recreation. Now what we're looking at is reopening our more formal sites with formal admission gates with a timed ticketing system, something we have not done before uh, to this degree. And again, thinking about it in a phased way. So can we open up our house museums just outside? The insides you know, will be closed for the foreseeable future. What do we do with our beaches? What, what do we do with some of our other cultural properties? Each of our sites is unique and poses different uh, challenges and opportunities. Absolutely. And uh, time ticketing, that's been a big uh, topic of conversation on this, on this webinar series. In regards to reopening, Julie, can you talk a little bit about what your plans are? Sure. We are still hoping that we can open in July, but we literally have heard nothing um, yet, even about just getting in beyond a very skeleton crew for mail and operations. We haven't heard anything about actually getting into our building, but we're still crossing our fingers and hoping that we can have a July opening. We also originally were looking at time ticketing, and I think that is very sound for basically training people to come in in a paced way. But we actually currently right now are leaning away from time ticketing. We did time ticketing when we opened our building four years ago. And we only needed to do it for a few months and realized that, hey, kind of the cadence is is paused enough anyway. And we have enough room in our building that once we sort of get people in the initial gate, that there's enough to intersperse. So we are actually not looking at time ticketing right now, but we are looking at doing some members only days to go ahead and launch as a thank you to members. And to also just, they're a really good audience for us to uh, experiment with and understand what the, what the building will look like when we reopen. There are some people on staff. We are a very progressive museum and there are some people on staff that are very interested in doing free days and I, I can't lie to you, I'm a little nervous about that just because when we've had free days before, people come out of the woodwork and I don't know, I don't know that I am comfortable having our staff 
have that challenge, but it could be that we will do that after the member days. I think we're all just sort of trying to understand what that will look like. We are on Tessitura, so if anybody um, wants to know that, time ticketing has worked for us very well before on Tessitura before and pushing people to online um, sales or even on-site buying on their phone. So that's a great thing too, because we're looking at a, as contactless as possible experience when they come through the door. For sure. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for sharing. And mm-hmm. uh, Tim, you want to talk a little bit about your reopening plans, anything special that you've got in mind? Sure. We are in a phased plan right now with the state. So we are just in phase one, phase two, if things go well, that may be coming in the next week or so, but that's all to be determined. Our plan is to go time ticketing. We would do it on the half hour. The plans are based upon the occupancy of, of rates of what the building typically can hold, and it's one quarter of that. So we're operating under that paradigm. And we've repositioned and our frontline member and visitor experience staff have been part of that, is looking at the new flow to the building to make sure that we've got a good flow to the building. And then, you know, that they are also in safe positions where our, our current setup is not ideal for social distancing but we're kind of reconfiguring a little bit so they can remain safe as well. Absolutely. And uh, Sewan, can you talk a little bit about uh, your plans? Yeah, absolutely. As Julie mentioned, San Francisco is a little bit slower to reopen. So I believe none of the museums in our area, except for zoos and, and such, have opening dates set. So on that note, we are brainstorming and making evolving plans, definitely looking at time ticketing as one option, as well as really pushing for online ticketing. But with acknowledgement that in San Francisco, uh, cashless businesses are illegal. So we do have to think about how we would safely receive cash um, payments for tickets and things like that. And then we're also thinking about members only hours, as well as making sure that our online programming is as robust as ever, knowing that some members will maybe not feel so comfortable coming in, even if um, the city reopens. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a a bit of a balancing act. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the demographic makeup or or some of where a lot of your visitors and members are coming from. Obviously, a big theme of today's webinar is really going to be focused on how how are we going to shift our focus to a much more kind of local centric visitor or member. And Sawan, do you want to do you want to kind of start by talking a little bit about that? What does your visitor and member base look like as far as where they're coming from? And have you given mm-hmm. any thought to how you might be able to respond to some of those decreases in tourism? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. So our members are predominantly local to the California uh, Bay Area. Around 20 to 25% of our visitors tend to be tourism related, domestic and international. I- I'm sure Julie might touch about, upon this too, but San Francisco actually saw a decrease in tourism last summer, which impacted all the museums and our attendance numbers. So as a result, we actually already shifted our tourism dollars to be more locally focused. So. I guess the stars are aligning in some ways, the silver lining in all of this. So along with that, even with our digital content promotions, we are specifically serving our local audiences for the most part. So I think that shift has already begun as of last year. So I think domestic visitors, local visitors will continue to be a a huge uh, focus area for us. Julie, can you talk a little bit about that? Obviously, you're also in San Francisco. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen historically and how you plan to adjust that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And just to, to add on to what someone said, she, for SFMOMA, uh, tourists can make up 50% of our audiences. So when you have close to a million people coming in, 
if all of a sudden half of those aren't showing up. <laughs> That's a real concern. So yes, we have, as I'm sure everyone has, we're all working on our budgets right now because without those attendees showing up, we're really quite worried about the next fiscal year. Um, but you know, as she had mentioned as well, we definitely are looking at marketing more to our local audience, a staycation, rediscover your backyard, you know, that kind of a thing, go where you're most comfortable, come back again. And so in conjunction with our marketing department, and they're launching that campaign, we are comfortably moving forward with an acquisition campaign as well that hopefully will launch around the same time as we reopen. And then obviously a re activation campaign as well for people that may have dropped during this time of closure saying like, Hey, we're open again. We have all these safety measures in place for both you and our staff, you know, please come in and, and feel comfortable and, and make this your art base. So we're all trying to do that as much as possible. Awesome. Thank you. And Daniel, can you talk a little bit about this? Obviously you're fairly local centric already, but I'd love to hear how you're, uh, how you're adjusting. That's right. Well, most of our members live in and around Massachusetts or the broader New England area, and we have some traffic across our borders, but largely we are able to promote this stay local message to the extent that you're staying local in Massachusetts. Now, what's complicated a little bit for us is that with our beaches, especially on Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, we do have a lot of outstate visitors, some with second homes or who have vacations. Many of them have the same week every year for their vacations and so we're looking into how we can market to them so that they have a, a safe experience when we reopen. And, and then our large beaches in and around the Boston area are heavily populated uh, in the best of times. And so we're challenged by um, inventing this time ticketing approach when it's really just been that members and others, but predominantly members who have that level of membership can access our beaches for free. So they're sort of accustomed to that. We want to make sure that, you know, that we're taking care of their needs. But we don't see a big push to you know, normally to sort of get a lot of out-of-state traffic. So our state stay local message is really regional. And I'd say about, the, about two-thirds or more of our members are within five or ten miles of a trustee's property that they can visit. So we're encouraging them to stay local. And then, again, introducing time-taking for some of our more popular, larger sites that draw from a larger uh, geographic area. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. And Tim? Uh, yes. So we, comparatively to San Francisco, we are not a heavy tourism based in the sense that people coming internationally. We do have a pretty good percentage, but I would say it's more in the teens versus 50%. So from that standpoint, what we're really looking at is comfort levels for folks and how far what used to be an adventure. So our folks might have wanted to travel to San Francisco for their adventure. Their adventure may be, I'm going to go five miles from where I live and that's good. I'm going to go, go to the museum. So we're really thinking in that terms on comfort levels and as Sawan was saying about just even on the digital component. So as we're rolling out, we're trying to figure out how much of this can we do with the experience and how do, are we inclusive of the folks that aren't even quite ready for that experience, an in-person experience, and com combining those two efforts together. So we're definitely going to go at this gently and then you know, learn as we go, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think that segues nicely into, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of marketing strategy, membership marketing specifically. Are you changing the way that you're approaching that to be more kind of locally focused? 
to be more staycation focused. And if you are changing that, what does that look like? What are you changing? You know, can you talk a little bit more kind of nitty gritty on that? And then, you know, additionally, are there things that you're thinking about doing that you haven't quite initiated yet? What is, you know, what are some of the plans for the future as far as shifting your marketing strategy? Tim, you want to start us off with that? Sure. I I think the word for us all is nimble. The lead time on when we were having big exhibitions and all those things, we took a pretty good lead time on this, not knowing where we're going to open, what protocols we're going to be under. As I was putting our our budgets together uh, for the coming year, it really had a lot had to do is how quick can we pivot on the decision and take advantage of a window or momentum as far as marketing list and things like that, just because I'm going to run more geographically based campaigns, knowing that's where a lot of past members that are in a certain vicinity, that's where we're going to double down. We probably won't buy as many lists as we have in the past for marketing, but look at our own database and also find some cost, cost savings in that as well. Try to make the most for the impact from the dollar. Definitely. And Julie, you want to talk a little bit about how that looks uh, you know, for SFMOMA? Yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at a couple different things. First of all, and I didn't say well, while 50% of our attendants are tourists, um, 50% are not, and and our membership obviously does very much skew to what we're calling sort of our nine Bay Area counties. So 90 to 95% of our members do come locally. So in a way, we can also see it on the sunny side too, where if like more people are come locally, we we do have a better chance to really um, make that conversion rate skyrocket. So we we would love to make that happen if at all possible. So we're looking at ways to maybe change some of the messaging for people that are doing online purchases to encourage them to think about buying a membership instead of buying tickets if they're buying those online. And then, like I said, we are looking for forward to doing a reacquisition campaign. We have, we have definitely continued to do renewals during the closure. Thankfully, about a year and a half ago, we launched an auto renew program, and that has been bringing in the most amount of money each month, which is great. But we're still doing email and mail renewal um, campaigns, although our mailings we have really reduced to be pretty much just people that have renewed by mail in the past and to keep everyone else a little more fluid with with emails and actually increase the amount of, of emails instead of you know, skipping every other month or something like everyone's getting emails every month. And even then, of course, we're seeing renewal rates down, but hoping that once we get open again, that those people will come back. And then like Tim said too, we actually had an acquisition campaign that was about to drop. It was within um, a week of when we closed, it was supposed to drop. So of course, all that kind of got recycled, unfortunately, but the pieces we were able to save, we did. And, and we're looking at, at doing an acquisition can, campaign, like Tim said, to as local of an audience as possible, really digging deep into our own lists of dropped members and um, ticket buyers that have already come in and, and shown some interest to SFMOMA and trying to get those people to, to come back and in as members. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. And Mm -hmm. and Daniel, this might look a little bit different on your side, but can you talk a little bit about how you're responding? Yeah, sure. So I like what Tim said about being nimble. Uh, We're trying to be steady, but nimble. So our policy is that we're not making any drastic changes in our campaigns, not renewal, not acquisition, but that we're responding to the situation as best we can and that we are communicating as best we can. So again, we're challenged somewhat by the fact that 
we didn't really ever close. We kind of closed some of our properties and then kind of reopened some, and now we want to reopen all of them. So that message, and, you know, we've tried to have that resonate through all of our campaigns, driving home the message that since our founding in 1891, the trustees has depended on its members. We need to depend on them again, but they can depend on us for the open space, access to nature and historic sites that we've always offered. So what we're doing is trying to shift our renewals and acquisition to online. Since our offices are closed, it, we're challenged because we process our gifts in the office. So we've seen an uptick in online transactions, which is great. But again, is that because we're shifting from direct mail into online? And little things like instead of heavily promoting access to our beaches, we normally do a sort of see on the beach, get to the beach around this time of year. We're really focusing just on long-term benefit of membership rather than just access to a specific site such that we used to have an insert promoting the beach. We removed that. Now all of our inserts and all of our campaigns stress an online gift for fastest service so you can get your materials. And then lastly, we did something that's a little old fashioned, but has been very successful. We actually only have email saturation for about 65% of our current members. So that's 35% of our people. We haven't even been able to share our sort of ongoing openings and closures and other announcements. So sort of a let's stay in touch postcard. Um, and I was thrilled that we were able to, to do it from sort of start to finish in a week, which for us is Herculean, getting it printed, getting it mailed, everything. I think we've already had like a 15% response rate to that. People going online and either um, subscribing to our newsletters, giving us our email, or even if they unsubscribe, we have had a separate batch to invite people to resubscribe. And that's been very successful. That's awesome. That's and great. last but not least, uh, Sivan. <laughs> Yeah, I think as Daniel and Tim both mentioned, I think being staying nimble is the name of the game for museums right now. And I think as Julie mentioned, we are definitely focusing on launching an acquisition campaign once we have a reopening campaign and date set. In the meantime, every May is a month we celebrate our members, Mays for members. And this May is one of the few few Mays <laughs> or only Mays uh, where we weren't able to offer on-site programming for our members uh, because of our closure. And so this year we actually launched a gated members only content portal on our website. And on there, we're providing both uh, exclusive online programming for our members geared towards families as well as adult audiences. And then members only emails coming from our staff members as well as a deeper discount on our online store products and things like that. So we were able to uh, offer a number of new benefits during this month that are friendly for our at-home visitors or members, as well as use that as a casual acquisition campaign as well. We actually saw a, a lift in our membership acquisitions during this, this month and it's still going on, so. That's great to hear. And I think that segues nicely. Can you talk a little bit about how you're catering to different segments of your member base? So are you offering any special hours for members or even on a more granular level within your membership base, families, seniors, you know, other demographics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sewan, you want to kind of continue with that? Sure. So the Explore term is unique in that we have a an adult-only membership offering as well as the family ones. So Thursdays, Thursday evenings, 6 to 10 p.m. every Thursday, we typically offer a themed night with uh, pop-up bars on the floor, adults-only experience. Makes perfect sense for the San Francisco Bay Area because the joke is that there are more dogs than kids in San Francisco. So we had to pivot and come up with an innovative new membership solution to um, really meet the audiences where they're at. And so our online programming is reflected similarly. We definitely have some 
content that's for this adult group, as well as content that's for families and parents, parents turned teachers, things like that. So providing on-site programming that addresses our diverse audience set, as well as doing that, doing that online, that's been really important for the Exploratorium. Thank you for sharing. And Daniel, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing on your side, how you're kind of catering to different segments of your member base? Well, we introduced member ticket pre-sale this past year, sort of experimentally for some of our large programs. And that's come in very handy because members are now familiar with that as a benefit and they're eager to access that. So that became a hallmark of our early communications around coronavirus that members hear about our information first. They have you know early access to, to whatever it is. So when that became time ticketing, we invited members for, we had about a week where they could access tickets before the general public. And hopefully as we respond to the changing environment and are able to open more of our sites and extend visitation hours, we'll have an opportunity to reach out to members again for some exclusive access. We also have many add-on programs uh, to our membership. So access to the beach is actually an additional category of membership sort of elevated. You can buy discounted passes as a member. So a separate segment that we always have to reach out to separately. So we're seeing that there's interest in our cultural sites and our beaches. And so we tend to cater to those different constituencies a little bit differently. Awesome. Thank you. And Julie. I love all these ideas. Uh, we actually don't necessarily um, cater to our different audiences quite as much as what other people have talked about. Although we do have um, senior discounts and we have young adult discounts on our memberships. However, we do definitely find that some different groups of members take advantage of different types of benefits. So for instance, we do try to do member previews for at least um, six ex exhibitions a year. And we do find that a lot of the seniors in particular take advantage of the mornings to come in and do preview hours for members. Although that's not to say that they don't show up at our occasional parties as well in full costume. <laughs> so, but we, you know, we recognize that a lot of those parties and events that we used to do so much to cater towards the the young who want to come out on a date on Thursday night and, and so on and so forth, we, we won't really be able to do so much anymore. So we're looking at um, still trying to continue the member previews for exhibitions and hopefully people of all ages can come in and do those. And we do have, those are typically for us on a Thursday and a Friday during the day, we have Thursday night that we're open. And then we usually do sort of for a couple hours on a Saturday morning. So if people are, are with their families, that would be a time that they could do that. But we're also thinking of pivoting. We know already from our governor that really any events above 50 really won't be considered at the earliest until January. So we're looking at um, ways that we can sort of have, you know, a party to go in a bag or something like that. So we're looking at different ways that we can say, have a preview for our upcoming Diego Rivera show in November, where instead of having a member lounge on a Thursday night where you could have a date night, when you check in, we can give you a little bag that maybe has a little scavenger hunt that you can do on your own, maybe has a craft that you can take home and do by yourself or with your family, or that it maybe has a suggestion for a selfie that you can post, of course, somewhere on our social media or something like that. And maybe even a, a drink 
recipe or something like that. So, you know, our lounges are used to usually drinks and crafts and some sort of activity and dancing and things like that. So if we can provide some things like that in a bag, then that might encourage engagement for people to actually show up and see what happens. So for sure, hearing that idea more and more, this kind of summer camp in a bag or school in a bag, or again, you know, a date night out, you know, to go. So yeah, super fun idea. And Tim, last but not least, can you talk a little bit about your different segments, your membership base, how you're targeting them, how you're catering to them, and how that might vary based on family, seniors, different demographics? Sure. So one of the good things with this downtime, so this is a shout out to the member and visitor experience staff has been calling all our members. So we've got about 20,000 members and they turn out about a thousand a week. So it's been a great way to get feedback on what they love about us, what they also wish we would change. So we're taking some of that and as we're figuring our roll, I guess, roll back plan, the rolling into the, the uh, new operating, we're looking at a lot of that. So, you know, our seniors, we're, we're having a better idea of understanding their comfort level and what they want. Very important to us. They're, you know, there are regular visitors. They come, some come weekly, some come, come more than, you know, once a week. Young families, that as well. So making sure we're still reaching out to that. You know, our summer, we run an outdoor concert series that is a, usually a big draw. And unfortunately, not be able to do that. So we have many different segments, and we're really trying to talk to them, literally almost individually, on what they want and what they need from us, especially coming back. Awesome. And and kind of while while we're on that idea, how have the value propositions for membership shifted during coronavirus? So I'm thinking specifically, like, how might you attract audiences who typically would opt for a different vacation plan, go out of town, but they're kind of exploring a more local option now. Tim, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's really the two factors I would say in travel is, you know, do you feel safe and do you have money? That's always the the parameters on it. So if you look at those, we offer for a a market, it can be a safe place, especially if we're clear about communicating what our our procedures for keeping the, the protocols up around, you know, hygiene and cleanliness and all that. So on that level, we've got a value proposition there I think we can offer. And then also affordability. I mean, there is a lot of folks are, are going to take a hit through this, but there's a lot of folks that are not. And then there's all, a lot of folks that maybe they were going to rent a vacation home. Well, that's not going to happen for a number of reasons, but you can get a family membership to your museum or something like that. So I think there is a value proposition in that because people are going to be looking for replacement for their, their big trip they're, they're planning for the family or their, the entertainment uh, dollar is going to shift in some ways. And I think museums can position themselves in a way to, to kind of capture that at this time. Absolutely. And, and Sewon, can you talk a little bit about how your, you know, how your value proposition has shifted, you know, as far as kind of attracting different audiences and different activities? Yeah, of course. In terms of memberships, especially since we are still temporarily closed, something that we're messaging out actively to our current and potential members is our nonprofit status and our mission really just reminding everyone that, you know, by purchasing a membership does help make our mission possible every day. So that's been a big part of our, our messaging during our closure. And I see in the Q&A section, some folks are asking questions about the Exploratorium's very specific messaging as a hands-on museum. We've been hands-on since 50 years ago. So, you know, that's going to be a huge shift for us. And because we do design and develop a lot of our exhibits, I think 
a lot of new innovations will come out and I'm really curious to see what other hands-on museums will do, especially science centers. It's a big question mark, especially when you have, you know, over 600 exhibits that are very much hands-on and interactive. How do you create a, a touchless or a less hands-on, but still interactive experience, you know? So I think it's a, it's a good, but big question mark for our team as we navigate the pandemic. And I think that will be a change that we reflect when we reopen. Um, for sure. And while we're on that, while we're on that question, we've got it here. The question is from Martine de Matteo. And, and the question is, the exploratory and planning to not reopen its hands-on activities. How do they see this affecting the draw for visits and memberships if you're not at full capacity? So you answered kind of the first part of that question. As far as the latter part, do you want to kind of take a crack at that? Sure. It sounds like museum capacity is, you know, a, a fine balance between museum's comfort level as, as well as your local and state regulations. So I think those are evolving, I think, probably on a daily basis for most museums, or especially as things get announced. I think, as I mentioned, the, our primary question mark is going to be, how do we recreate the explore term experience and make sure you know, it's safe for our visitors. And before our closure, we did install a lot of hand-washing stations within the galleries, which is new and unique to the Exploratorium because a lot of the things are hands-on. And I think a lot, we're definitely looking to other museums that are reopening around the world to see what they're doing, like temperature checks, you know, things like that at the door, as well as trying to figure out what, what we do to our current set of exhibits, especially curating exhibits that are less contact-based. So I think it's, it's a mix of making sense of what we already have, as well as innovating and creating something new. Thank you for, for sharing. And getting back to our last question, Daniel, can you talk a little bit about how your value proposition has shifted over the last eight or so weeks? Or even eight or so months, Dan. We started talking a couple of years ago about shifting the, the proposition of sort of more of a value-based transactional membership to more affinity-based, recognizing that since our founding, again, we've depended on members for their support, that sense of loyalty and belonging, and not just free admission and discounts and, and things like that. So, and, and that served us well through this because we're able to talk about long-term relationship that we're engaged in and even parse it such that we need your support now. And when we open, we're going to depend on you even more. And I think that that served us well. But in terms of value, probably the, the number one uh, benefit to our members is free admission. So it's a little tricky if there is no admission at all. <laughs> so the ability to get back on property soon, have it free and open uh, to them, I think still resonates. And so we're trying to sort of balance this sense of support and loyalty that we, we're depending on your support, but we need to reopen in as safe a way as possible with that demand, pent up demand, frankly, for free access. So that's a little uh, dance that we're doing right now. Absolutely. And Julie, do you want to uh, kind of quickly throw in on that as far as how your value propositions have shifted? I know you've talked a little bit about it in the last question as well, but you know, anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it is it is something that we think about as well. And we find that up to 90% of our members are individual and dual level members, which are definitely absolutely transactional. But we've always, for years, we've always tried to, um, whenever we're actually having an in-person or on-phone transaction with people, and to a certain extent on our web as well, we do try to promote that supporter level membership, which for us is the $300, which I think someone was actually asking about as well. That is our, our reciprocal level membership at all as well, we, which we are not currently 
planning on changing the price for at all, even though that benefit will at least hopefully in the short term go away, but we're hoping in the long term, it will it will remain. And we always try to sort of start the discussion with that is what we see is, a, is like the best value of membership in that it gets you general membership, but it gets you all the extra passes and reciprocal and, you know, different ways to support the museum. So as much as you, as I think it's important, even for these transactional members to constantly elevate to them how bring philanthropy into the conversation and let them know how even an individual or a dual level membership is really supporting us. But again, like just even one level up is just brings them a little bit more benefit, but, but really supports the, the museum in a very different way. So I think that that's one way that we're looking at it. Thanks for sharing. Well, well, I want to go back to something that Daniel had mentioned too. And, and this is another question that uh, has been coming up a lot recently. What role does your mission play in how you create value through your membership? Obviously, this is becoming increasingly more prevalent right now as kind of transactional memberships start to lose some of their value to some folks, some of those lower tier members, as Julie was mentioning, who are kind of more in it for the financial benefit of it. So Daniel, can you start by talking a little bit about how are you creating that value? What does that look like? And then are you factoring that into kind of part of your marketing and your messaging? Great. So the trustees is lucky because we are both a collection of assets. So we have the physical historic house museums. Last year, we uh, joined forces with the Decordovus Museum in Lincoln, which was uh, uh, huge for us. So there are these assets, right? These places that you can visit and interact with. But we're also a cause. So we protect over 25,000 acres across Massachusetts, 100 miles or more of coastline, which makes us second only to the, the state government in terms of coastline ownership and maintenance. We have these working farms. We have all of these agricultural sites and open space sites that depend on members for, for, for support. So just operationally, even if we didn't have museums and didn't have a gate, we can rely on the loyalty of our members because they feel like they're supporting something bigger than themselves. There's a real sense of pride that you're sort of supporting what, what basically is sort of like a mini national trust for the state of Massachusetts. So there's a real sense of ownership and it goes both ways, right? Because of that, we wanna reciprocate with giving access to our sites. And so we're a little challenged with that part of it right now, but. Our members are very loyal. We have a, a pretty high retention rate. And right now, our, our view is that any hiccup will be a transaction, will be a question of getting to the mail, or it's a technical glitch with the website. It's not a decline in loyalty. So that's what we're counting on. And we're trying to message that accordingly. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing. And Julie, can you talk a little bit about that, the role that your mission is playing as you, you know, build value, create value in your membership? Yeah, I think where we're trying to be, and I'm sure that um, Swan can attest to this as well, that certainly while we cannot have people in our building right now, we very much understand and it's part of our mission to grasp that art is an essential part of people's lives. And so one way that we've been able to do that is by emailing them and getting them on social media and providing content on our website or on their phones or podcasts or recommendations for music or videos or things like that. And I think that just acknowledging that and kind of putting stuff out there it feels a little altruistically, then we're reinforcing that for them. 
I think it is important to note because I know that a lot of people are asking about tiered content and paywalls and, and this and that, that for the most part, we're just kind of putting it all out there right now. I think that we're very interested in as the building starts to reopen, perhaps a little adjusting that so it's a little more tiered approach. I don't know that we would necessarily go with a paywall, but we may go with links. As Dan had said, we do have already sort of tickets and content that sometimes is available like a week before to members. And it's not that it isn't is behind a paywall, but that a link is sent out to members first. And so they sort of have the opportunity just to discover that first as much as we can make them feel special during this time. But again, eventually the content does roll out to the general public and they realize that we're continually putting out this message of how important art is to all of us. And, and while we're there, Sewan, do you want to talk a little bit about that, kind of the mission of Exploratorium and, and how you're creating value in that sense, as Julie was just alluding to? Sure. So our mission is to create inquiry-based experiences that transform learning worldwide. And I think right at the shelter in place announcement, our team um, actually created a, a landing page uh, full of resources around virus related science, especially at home activities that you can do with readily available materials to learn more about how viruses trans transmit, how long do they last on surfaces, questions that people are having about the virus, being able to answer them through kind of a inquiry based way, I think has been kind of a huge focus for us. And in terms of, you know, messaging to our members. It's just simply reminding them that them continuing to be our members is helping to create um, positive impact every day for the Exploratorium and the work that we do. And I think similar to a lot of other museums, we started a weekly uh, newsletter series just packed full of free online content for home learning, especially the virus science work that our science scientists are working on and, and virtual events as they uh, get rolled out. And so we've definitely been focused on both providing value to our members and our non-members, as well as really highlighting our impact and our mission and our focus, whether you know or not our doors are open or closed. And we've been focused on making sure that that content is segmented for our audiences as much as we can, uh, so that it feels customized and appropriate for them. And as for paywall content, we haven't experimented with that at all. I think right now all of our content is free um, and online and accessible for everyone, except for some teachers only virtual workshops since professional development is part of the work that we do. Thank you for, for sharing. And last but not least, Tim, can you talk a little bit about how you're creating value in your memberships? Sure. The, uh, the big thing in, in for us is we've always had a, a commitment to education and being an educational resource. So that's obviously gone into hyper mode with COVID-19. So predominantly that was looking at our school age children up into our high school. We have wonderful educational staff, but this has been a time where we've turned to really looking at how are we educating, you know, adults and older adults who want uh, mental stimulation. They're at home and you can only watch so much Netflix. I've, I've proven that. <laughs> so you start looking for other things for entertainment and to kind of challenge your brain. And we're fortunate to have some wonderful staff that are very savvy in the digital education world, and they're helping translate that. So whether you're taking advantage of that or not, the value proposition is we're all right now, everybody, all these parents have become educators at home, whether they wanted to or not. 
So part of our value proposition is, you know, we are helping parents, we're helping educators. And if you believe in those two things, then we're a great place to keep your money and keep your membership. So. Yeah, very much appealing to the the sentiment of the time. Everybody is all of a sudden homeschooling. So I think that really aligns well with where we're meeting people where they're at. So we have a lot of questions here from the audience. We're going to try to get to a few of these here before we break. This one is from Mackenzie Merrill Wick. Many of us are planning to extend memberships for the time we're closed. It's pretty clear that many of our members will still not be comfortable visiting once we reopen. What are your plans for messaging the end of the extensions and possible requests for refunds and or even bigger extensions? Tim, do you want to start us off with that one? Sure. Uh, it's a great question. And a lot of folks have been asking it. So right now, our policy is if you renew at this time, we will extend. We've also been doing some one-off extensions if people ask. But right now, that's kind of where we are on this. Some of this is also looking when this first started, were we going to be closed for two weeks? Was it going to be two months or is it going to be four months? Everybody's going to have to answer that differently. So we didn't want to exactly come out with just a pat, well, here's three months and it had been two or be three. So we're trying to tailor it to the moment. But right now we all offering and we're, we're on Tessator and they build a nice little utility for extending the memberships. And when you renew, you get three additional months. Awesome. Thank you for, for sharing. Does anybody else want to jump in on this? Not going to put anybody on the spot. Julie, Daniel, either one. Go ahead, Dan. Well, just to echo what Tim said, we're doing almost exactly the same thing, is that we have not decided to automatically extend memberships for a lot of the reasons that Tim mentioned. You know, it's been a rolling opening, closure, reopening. So many of our properties have been open. And again, we think of membership as creating and sustaining a sense of belonging, not just free admission. So we hope that that continues to ring truth for our members. But we will accommodate special requests. We use Razor's Edge. We can easily change somebody's expiration date um, and send them a confirmation email. But we're also, as again, as Tim mentioned, you know, stressing renewals. So we can do that, you know, if someone requests, but, but better yet, if they'd like to renew, we can add a month or two to the membership. It just it extends and further cements that sense of loyalty. With acquisition, we always offer 15-month memberships, so no change there. Awesome. And Julie? Yeah, and I'll just uh, chime in here. I, I have heard that there are museums that have done the extension for their entire base. I know, say, Monterey Bay Aquarium, I believe, is one of them. We could not, our, our membership, 60,000 plus, we couldn't take that big of a hit to the current year and the future year. But what's been interesting is that we have, however, been very happy to do it on uh, as, re as request basis. And we expect that those requests will probably continue to come in for the next year <clears throat> as people's memberships do um, do renew. The interesting thing is that, you know, with that big of a membership base, I'd say we've had less than five requests for refunds, which is rather shocking. And the ones that are maybe under 10, but the ones that we are getting in are people that have lost their jobs or, or this and that, or, you know, may have just bought the membership and never had a chance to use it and then lost their jobs. So we have been accommodating for, for those kinds of reasons. But otherwise, extensions have been our, our, our go-to and, and people are, are delighted if they want to ask that we can give it, but again, on very much a one-off basis. Great. Thank you for sharing. Taylor, do you want to throw anything in there on the extension side of things? 
Sure. In terms of extensions, actually, we automatically applied one for all of our members, really because with shelter-in-place, you know, we haven't been open since then. So that's something that we chose to do as, as a museum. And our plan is to continue it until we have a reopening date and then communicate again with our members about what to expect from there on. Great. Got another question. This one is from Kristen Jennings. Our events are a big membership driver and we are unlikely to be able to resume them for many months after we're open, still currently closed. Any suggestions on how to message this to prospective members to still join now instead of waiting until events resume? Sewan, do you want to jump on that one first? Sure. So something that I've been, I've been reading Colin Dillensteiner's newsletters uh, very, very actively. Mm -hmm. And one thing that comes to mind is what you do to engage your audiences virtually and online. Those are going to be your first visitors, your members and these really, really engaged um, audiences are going to be your first visitors potentially when you reopen and it feels safe to do so for everyone. And so that's been definitely top of mind uh, for me as a digital marketer, um, thinking about new and innovative strategies for engaging with our event attendees, because that's been a really big driving force for the Exploratorium too. The team is really great at putting on events um, for the cost of a museum admission. How do you translate that to be online? I think that's another question. And how do you keep those attendees um, so that they don't just only attend one virtual event, but keep coming back? And so I think two things that have worked really well is one, thinking about events as series instead of a one-off event, so that you're building an audience. And and of course, really uh, thinking about who your audience is. And then if you do have marketing um, dollars, putting that towards uh, your local audience. I think those would be my lessons learned so far. For sure. Anybody else want to throw in on that, on the event side of things? We're, we're looking at doing almost upper level events. And part of that would be once we get these going, is it something that we could segue into almost like the, uh, the parlor event? Because we are going to have the same thing of groups of no more than 20. So can we do some events first online that has sort of an intimate feel? And then as we come back online, can we actually recreate that same kind of experience and even potentially have a live stream feed or to some of these type of things. So those folks that are not ready to be in the building can still participate. Great. And Daniel or Julie, anything you want to throw in there? I think I've already said my thing about the lounge, the bag thing. Perfect. So Perfect. <laughs> We've definitely upped our game in terms of online sort of virtual programming since we had to shut down our sites and trustees actually offers almost 5,000 programs each year. So that's been a real challenge for us. That also would include you know, children's summer camp and tours of our farms and things like that. So we're at present weeks, we expect that we still will be able to offer some camp session, but that's a fluid situation too. So I think we're trying to take a long game approach here and, and hope that members will stay with us through these challenging times so that when we reopen, whatever new normal looks like, they'll be first in line. One of, the, one of our big is in the winter, we do winter lights, which is a, a time ticket, paid ticket, to some of our sites where we have holiday decorations and and sort of seasonal decorations. It's been huge for us. And already now we're getting questions about whether we will be offering winter lights again, and we want to. So we're trying to take a a long-term approach at how we can bring some of these things back. Definitely. And I've got one more question for for all the panelists, and, and that's what is one big thing, one big takeaway that you would want each person watching to be able to consider and kind of bring back to their 
prospective organizations. Daniel, you want to uh, kick us off with that one? Sure. It is, I think, one of the most valuable pieces of communication that we ever send, and that is the line, thank you for your support. It is valuable, especially during these challenging times, and it's much appreciated. I say that all the time. When I first started in, in the membership field, you know, 100 years ago, I thought it was sort of awkward to say thank you for being a member or thank you for your membership. It's not awkward. It's essential. People love hearing that. When you begin or end your email, even the transactional email, even something about our plan opening or something where you're providing visitation information, you know, do, don't do this. You must wear a face mask, all, this, it, it, all of that. If you can sign off, thank you for being a member. It resonates tremendously. That's great advice. Julie. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just nodding. I'm completely agreeing with that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, we are, we're sending out two a, a, virtually identical emails each week. One goes to the general public and one goes to, to membership. And the main difference is that at the top of the member one, I've taken whatever marketing message just put together and I have a salutation and I thank them very much for being a member and add a little twist in and we've actually gotten a few emails back, you know, dear Julie, thank you so much for reaching out to me, you know, and I think that we want them to feel that it's all about them and that we are right there with them in, in this challenging time. And that as soon as we can get our doors open for them, we will. And um, in the meantime, if they can just hang in there with us, like we'll all eventually meet up together and have a drink. Awesome. So, yeah. And- and Tim, what, what advice would you have? We're listening. I think that's, it's just a great time. I mean, everything is like heightened. I mean, we're going in our backyard and staring at bugs and we're, when, you know, <laughs> people call me and they're, they're telemarketing some, you know, some products I don't need. I don't need a new bathroom, but I'll stay on the phone and talk to you for 10 minutes because I just want to talk mm-hmm. to somebody. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a great time to say we are the museum and we are listening to you and we're listening to your feedback and your input. That's great advice as well. And Sewan, last but not least. Yeah, I think it's everything that everyone has said already. Something new that we're doing for our members right now is sending them a letter each week from a different staff member, really just creating that personal connection, even though we can't meet you in person at the museum right now. We're at our homes, in our living rooms, in our home offices, uh, working and excited to connect with you and and learn more about where you are and what we can do to provide value during this time. So, yeah. Great. Thank you for, for sharing. Okay. A couple quick things before you all go, a recording of this webinar is going to be available on the QZM website later today, as well as a link to our shared Google document uh, with some coronavirus resources and some community ideas. There's a whole Q and a section on there as well. We've got another webinar coming up this week, exploring the future of museums in the era of coronavirus. That's this Wednesday at two o'clock Eastern time. We also have another new resource. It's a collaboration that Museum did on an ebook with Blackbot. It's called The Ultimate Guide to Surviving and Thriving as a Cultural Organization in the 21st Century. That's available for download. It's on the Museum website. There'll be a link posted in the chat in a moment. And you can get that for free. And then lastly, stay safe, everybody. You know, have, uh, have another great week. Thank you all for being here, all 1,500 of you. And again, stay safe. Thank you to our panelists. Incredible advice. Always a pleasure. And, and just thank you again.